Good morning. My name is Pastor Tim, and I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance. And we've just been delighting in this series during the Advent, during the Christmas season, of just being able to reflect on the life of Christ in what is, for us, many of us, the busiest month of the year. So before we dive into Scripture, let me just pray for us. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for who you are. And right now, as we come before you, some of us come excited, uh, looking forward to the season. Some of us come with fear and trepidation or worries or anxieties. And we thank you that we can come as we are in front of you here as a community. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would illuminate the word of God so we can understand what your word says and how it points us toward Jesus. And Spirit, I ask right now just for your filling so that the words I preach will be for your glory and your wonder as we see more and more of your call on your, our life to not be fearful because you, Emmanuel, are with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things I actually kind of wanted to do as a joke was I wanted to switch the reading for today. If you read through Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 that we just read, the preceding section is actually the genealogy. And I wanted to see John and Freda come up here and just be like, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And kind of keep going like this and maybe watch from a distance as some of you kind of drifted off to sleep or kind of zoned out. Yet, as I was spending time this week in this passage, and as you study scripture, you're always curious to know the passage beforehand, the passage afterwards, so you can have a greater understanding of the context. And oddly, as I spent time thinking, praying, wrestling with other people about what this passage speaks to us, I started to look at the genealogy. And I remember thinking to myself, this is kind of cool. I remember a mentor of mine used to say, he read through the scriptures every year, and he would read through everything in the Bible, even these genealogy sections. And he had done that for 35 years, and he was still learning cool new things. And I remember thinking to myself, that's amazing. Like, I read through scriptures, but sometimes, if I'm going to be honest, I get to these genealogy sections, I kind of just, like, skip over them to the next section. Like, the building of the temple, kind of skip over that. This how many cubits, this how many cubits. It's like, there's only so much measurements I can keep in my head. And what is a cubit anyways? When I got to this genealogy section, I started to look at it and think through it and pray and started reading other books. And all of a sudden, last week, I was sitting with Pastor Joy, and I was telling her all these things I was learning from the genealogy. And she's like, this is incredible. I'm like, yeah, I don't even want to preach on Joseph anymore. I just want to preach on the genealogy. This is the coolest thing ever. I don't think in my life I've ever been this excited for a genealogy. Yet, I think it's impossible not to spend time at least in this genealogy because I think it brings our passage about Joseph into greater clarity. I think today as we study Matthew together, this genealogy just helps us to understand, to not fear, and look forward to what God is calling us to. Amen? All right. So Matthew is actually writing to this Jewish audience. He assumes his audience is well-versed in the history uh, of Jewish culture and thought. And you're going to see this in the first two chapters of Matthew in the birth story alone. He's going to go back and quote prophets from Israel's history. He's going to quote Hosea. He's going to quote Micah. He's going to quote Jeremiah. And in this passage today, he even quotes from Isaiah. The one thing he wants his people to realize and understand is that Jesus is not something new. 
He's like the fulfillment or the completion of what God has always been doing. He wants his people to understand that God's plan for all of history was for Jesus to come, die on the cross for our sins, so that those who place their faith in him may have eternal life. Yet, he wants the Jewish people to look into their own history and realize this Jesus isn't new, but it's been told about for hundreds of years beforehand, and he wants them to come to that realization. It would almost be as if, this is kind of a, an odd example, but bear with me. Imagine finding out at the end of your life, your, like, your grandma worked for the CIA. It would be kind of like a shocking revelation. My grandma's a spy. All of a sudden, you would kind of go back and look at old history notes and be like, oh, my mom, she missed my birthday in 2001. That was 9-11. Or she was like, she was in Libya when Gaddafi was killed. You'd be like, oh, man, you have some really dark thoughts about your grandma or wonder who she was all of a sudden. But it wouldn't change anything about history learning that fact. But that revelation would make you look back upon everything you knew about your grandma's life and understand it in a brand new light. Matthew is kind of doing the same thing with his Jewish audience. He's saying, in light of the Jesus who we've just seen rise from the dead and ascend to heaven, look back at the Old Testament, because it's talked about this for hundreds of years. He wants his people to realize this Jesus isn't something new. It's the completion or fulfillment of history. If you brought your Bibles today, feel free to open up to Matthew chapter 1. Verses 18 to 25, you can read along. What we're going to do, you can open up on your phone. If you're new here, feel free to even grab one of the blue Bibles in the rows in front of you and open to page 783 in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. What we're going to do is we love letting the Word of God just be the Word of God. So we're actually just going to read through this, kind of discuss it for a bit, and then keep systematically reading through this so that we are faithful to what the Scriptures say. So let me dive into Matthew chapter 1, verses 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. The title used for Jesus, I told you, we can't not go into the genealogy. It's way too much fun. We've got to dive back here. The title used here is Jesus the Messiah. And if you actually look at chapter 1, verse 1, it has three titles for Jesus that are listed there. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham kind of being like the, fourth, the founding father of the Jewish nation. David being like the greatest king in its history. And the Messiah, the one that the Jewish people who had been living in exile for almost 600 years awaited for upon his return. That would save them from, at that time, Roman oppression. Very Jewish titles, very Jewish understanding, but it points back to their history. And we're going to see why this is so important as we go along. Verse 18 continues. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This must have been a terrifying experience for Mary possibly a teenage girl, really young, finding out that she was pregnant through the Holy Spirit, she would have known Jewish law. She would have known Deuteronomy chapter 22 that states, if a betrothed virgin meets a man, just like Mary, in a city and lies with him, the punishment is that the two of them are to be stoned. She knew ancient law uh, that 
even though that is not what she did, that is what everyone would assume she had done. And not only that, she would have also known that the prosecution of the law often is not, it's skewed, not in favor of women. She would have, we even think of the gospel story where a woman who was caught in adultery is dragged before Jesus and all the men are getting ready to stone her. But here's the reality. If you're, dra- if you're caught in adultery, there's always someone else caught with you, but that person wasn't dragged there as well. Mary would have known the, what the law was and also that it wouldn't have worked in her favor as a woman. Pastor Andrew, Pastor Andrew talked last week in our sermon the angel Gabriel comes to her and simply says, Greetings, you who are highly favored or graced. The Lord is with you. And though people in that community had been whisperings and there had been shame around this teenage girl who would have been pregnant, yet Mary didn't run away from that. She trusted God. And the challenge for us from last week was, how are we going to respond to the news that God wants us, wants to give us his son if we believe and trust in him? Would we rather do our own thing and maintain control? Or would we want to be like Mary? We can trust and obey, and God does something powerful and historical. If you missed last week's sermon, you can always hop on our website and catch up with whatever is going on in our series. It's a great tool and resource that we can use. Yet, today's story is not about the life of Mary. It's about Joseph. So let's continue reading in verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. I know some might be thinking that Joseph was a coward to divorce her, but it's actually a move of compassion. Some of the other translations lay this out saying, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, or more specifically, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Do you see the problem here for Joseph? He knows that if he just makes this known to the world, the punishment for Mary is probably death. That he has great compassion on her and is just perplexed as to what to do moving forward. He knew the challenge for him, if he took Mary as his wife, was that he might be ostracized from his own family. In a culture where the only thing you had was your own family. Ostracized from your village or community when that's all you had. He might have had to live the rest of his life in opposition to everyone around him. And I think here's the hardest part. And as, as a parent, I think I feel this even more. He would have had to raise a child who would have been ostracized in all that they did in life. I can't imagine what it would be like for one of my kids and everything that they did to live in complete opposition to everyone around them, to be kind of the shame and talked about kids in the playground and part of life. Yet this is what was staring Joseph in the face. And he would have been possibly a teenager, early 20s, and here he is, with the weight of his world, weight of the world on his shoulders, and the, the life of Mary, struggling and trying to figure out what to do. Yet then in verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, 
do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing verse. Do not be afraid. And look at that title that the angel calls him. Oh, you lowly son of a car- you, car- you carpenter, don't worry about it. You are the son of David. He's connecting him back to Israel's greatest king. And he's saying, don't fear, don't worry. This is from God. Last week, an angel showed up to Mary to comfort her, and this week, it's the same. And boy, did Joseph need that comforting. It probably gave him reassurance to know that this was from God, yet it wouldn't change the fact that this was a really hard road ahead of him. Just like a parent, a pregnant mom found, finds out that their child may be born with physical or cognitive challenges and live with that for the rest of their life. It's good to know that. It's helpful to know that. Yet it doesn't make the road ahead that much easier. Joseph would have known and seen that the road ahead for him was difficult and challenging. In verse 21, it continues... She will give birth, Mary, to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This is what the Old Testament pointed to about the Messiah. Jesus, the name Jesus from the root Joshua is the Lord saves. And what does he save us from? The scriptures clearly say, he will save his people from their sins. And what are these sins? It's just, it's much more than just the wrong that we do. It's actually, in one sense, the core of who we are. You see, the one story that encompasses scripture is that this God of the universe, God created the universe, and he created humankind in his image. Yet humankind, and he gave them a choice, follow my way or do what you want. And we chose to do what we want instead of obeying and following God. And at that point, sin entered the world. And as Romans says, the consequence of sin is death. Yet God, in his great love, he pursued his people. He pursued them when they kept turning their back on him. He made a promise to Abraham, the founding, the founding father of the Jewish people, that Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Yet as his people kept turning away in his mercy and his love, he kept pursuing us. When he gave David the throne, even though the Israelites were not meant to have a king because their king was meant to be Yahweh himself, God showed great mercy even when those kings turned away from obeying what the word of the Lord says. And then they would hit a period when they lived in exile under Assyrian and Babylonian and Persian and then Greek and now Roman rule at the time of Matthew's writing. Yet God was faithful to his people. And then he sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, born of Mary, lived on this earth, just like us. And when he died and was crucified, sin could not hold him down because he had never sinned. And 
And he rose from the dead on the third day and eventually ascended to heaven. And those who put their faith and trust in this Jesus who died on the cross, repenting of their sins, can have an abundant life now and an eternal life forever. And this is the one story of Scripture. This is what we call the good news. And this is what brings all the Bible together. And this is the hope that we celebrate during this Christmas season. Verses 22 and 23 continue. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a quote from Isaiah 7, 14. If you remember, Matthew is always trying to connect it back to the Jewish history to show them how this Jesus is not something new, but he is the completion or fulfillment of history. Matthew is trying to show how a prophecy from the life of Isaiah pointed to Jesus 700 years before Jesus was born on this earth. Matthew is helping his Jewish readers understand how all the Old Testament has always pointed to this Messiah, to Jesus, who would come for his people. Yet for the reader today, the title that is used, and you can see it in verse 23, is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is the amazing idea, concept, that is so hard to fathom sometimes. It's the notion that the God of the universe came to this earth, lived in a body, walked and experienced life just like me and you. You know what? This is actually the hope of the Christian message. One of the most powerful things is that our God is not a God who is just out there. He experienced life just like us. And the powerful, amazing piece of that is he understands us. And walking with Jesus is a much more personal experience because, because of that, because he actually can relate to, who, to the life that we live. Yet, from verse 23, after this angel goes away, in verse 24, when Joseph woke up from this dream, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph's response was simple. He simply just trusted God. He simply didn't do what everyone else at the time probably would have done or run away. Yet just like Mary, he trusted and leaned in to, into what this angel was saying and put his faith and trust in God. He simply took God at his word. Yet, as I was reading this text, Matthew, as we said, is writing to his Jewish audience many of whom are Christians, and he's trying to connect the history, this genealogy of connecting Abraham all the way to Jesus. He's trying to help them understand uh, so much. I started to ask myself, why did he put this genealogy here? Why did he place this genealogy, and then they would have heard the story of Joseph? And how would they have understood this at that time? Yet, how would it have shaped their thinking and understanding of the story of Jesus? Well, I think in the simplest terms, the genealogy is this history lesson to the people who follow Jesus. It's a history lesson 
of, of Jewish history. We, we talked about this before in verse one, chapter 1, verse 1. There are three titles given there. The Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. <coughs> Abraham, kind of the forefather. David, their most prominent king. And the Messiah, as they lived in exile, the one that they looked forward to and put their hope in. And we're going to come back to that because I think it relates to three kind of periods of time that Matthew is shaping up here as well. The next thing, and this is a very odd piece, in ancient Near East genealogies, women were not a part of the written genealogy. It would have been such a foreign thing to see. So any person, first century Jew, reading this would have been like, there's a bunch of names of women who show up in here. And it would have been completely intriguing. They would have wondered what was going on. They would have heard names like Tamar in verse 3, and they would have remembered the story of this woman who was completely wronged by her family. Yet, she actually duped her father-in-law into sleeping with her in order to carry on a family line. So, you know, not exactly the greatest example in the world of life. But then there would be Rahab, who when the Israelites were claiming the promised land, she turned, even though she was a prostitute, yet she turned and said, Listen, your, people, your God is clearly powerful and I want to worship him. And she sided and joined the Israelites and became part of their people. Then you have Ruth from the people of Moab. This is amazing. This is kind of like the model citizen Ruth. Ruth is the person you want your son to, to marry. And she is kind of this amazing character who just clings to God. When her, as a foreigner, when her mother-in-law uh, when she loses her, I guess her father-in-law and her husband both die, she, instead of going back to her family, she says to her mother-in-law, who's going back to her people, she says, I will go where you go. Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. And she is just this model example and becomes part of the lineage like, of King David. And the last one is Bathsheba. And if you read in the text, it says, David was the father of Solomon whose mother was, had been Uriah's wife. He doesn't even list her by name in here. It's almost like he's kind of upset or disappointed with her behavior in life. And she was, part, she was actually a pawn in King David's adultery and murder of her husband. Uh, King David slept with Bathsheba, then to cover up the pregnancy, killed her husband by putting him into the battlefield at war. It's not exactly the most renowned names, and you end up with the last name here is Mary, and you have these five women. And you start looking at that, you're like, wow, you have some really noble characters, not so noble, some in the middle. And then you start looking at it carefully, and you look at Tamar. She's an Iranian, not, a Jew, not Jewish by background. Rahab, Canaanite, not Jewish. Ruth, Moabite, not Jewish. Bathsheba, we're not sure, but her, she was married originally to a Hivite, so possibly not Jewish as well. And Matthew is writing strategically. The last chapter of Matthew is what we call the Great Commission. And there's going to be the temptation for the, his Jewish audience to think, this is great, God is speaking just to us. And then at the end of the book, it's going to say, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Tell the entire world about this good news of Jesus. And there's going to be the temptation for his people to be like, well, it's really ours. We shouldn't share this with others. But Jesus is, Matthew's like, no, no, no. Look back at that genealogy. The only reason that lineage from Abraham to Jesus is preserved is because of Gentile women. I used some highly noble and not so noble people to preserve that lineage. 
Because really, this isn't about any of us, any race or any people. This is about a God who is faithful to his people. Oops. Yeah, that was me. Sorry. The last part we are going to see is in verse, chapter 1, verse 17. It even says, These are the 14 generations in all of Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And if you actually look through it, there, the, it's actually broken into three time periods. In the second time period, through the kings, there's even a few kings who are skipped over. And what Matthew is actually trying to do here is not complete, a complete accurate genealogy, but kind of almost like a like historical, poetic understanding that of three different eras of time. One is that first title, son of Abraham and the patriarchs. The second is son of David, the kings. And that's who that second part begins with. And the third part is the exile when they're awaiting the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. There's an amazing kind of historical tale of the power of God to watch over his people when he gave them a simple promise that you will be like the stars in the sky. But Abraham was one person and really, really old and really, really past the age of childbearing. Even through the kings, he gave them this promise and he was faithful to his kings even when they turned their back on God. And as the Israelites in the third section lived in exile, lived under, at this time, Roman rule, God was still working. God was still alive. The Israelites, the Jewish readers of Matthew would have looked at this genealogy beforehand and saw there is the son of Abraham, son of David, and the Messiah. God has been working through, the, through women, parts of society that people don't value. God is working through all the nations, not just us. And he has been faithful over his people, even when his own people haven't been that faithful. And they would have concluded, God's ways are not our ways. The women, the exile, all nations, broken history, broken people. And now it should come as no surprise that God continues to work through Mary and Joseph. That is how he has operated through history. He uses ordinary people to trust him, who trust in him for big things. And honestly, this genealogy is what should give us hope today. The genealogy helps, helps us see that the history of God at work includes using and working through average people like me and like you. And so when the weight of this life or the responsibilities of this call for our life overwhelm us, be like the readers of Matthew and look at the genealogy and see that our God has been faithful to his people through all generations. He works through all sorts of peoples in all sorts of situations, in the good times and the bad times. And when he calls us to something that scares us or terrifies us or we don't quite understand, let us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, respond as Mary and Joseph did in that we are not to be afraid and we are not to fear because our God, Emmanuel, is with us. Amen? This is what he is calling us to. It may not be easy, but let us take hope because our God, Emmanuel, is truly with us. 
At this time, I invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in a couple songs of worship before we close. I wish I could say I was a person who had no fear or no worry in life. And I'm going to even share this kind of silly thing that's on my mind these days. Our lovely car of several years is about to die. I know we have to buy a new car. There's a part of me that's like, oh, I hate buying a car. I'm going to get ripped off. I'm going to buy a car and then spend $5,000. I'm kind of worried about this simple little decision in life. Yet, here is, I guess, a challenge or an encouragement for you. Do two things. A, this week, just go back and write down your own genealogy your own life history, your own record of how God has been faithful to you, your family throughout history, and even the simple things that he has brought to you. And then with that in mind, go to him with your fears. Take to him your worries or your anxieties or the things that terrify you and surrender them to him. Knowing that the God of history the God who promised Abraham, who promised David, and promises people a Messiah. Even when they didn't feel or wondered where he was, he was always working because he is a God who is faithful. So Father, our prayer to you today is help us to remember what you have done, not just for us, but for those throughout history. And we come before you with what our fears, our worries, what is on our heart, whether that is our anxieties with relationships and family and friends during this Christmas holiday, our challenges, addictions, different things going on in our life. And we come and lay them before a God who has always been faithful and our God, Emmanuel, who is with us. And we surrender them to you and we ask you Give us a heart not to fear, but to trust in you, because our God, Emmanuel, is with us. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.